Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of His glory to you. Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Vince. Uh, I'm one of the elders here. If we haven't met, I'd love to meet you. So uh, let's, let's do that after, after our time together this morning. We are working through the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We are again going to be covering uh, the span of a couple chapters. So um, from the end of one and, and through the middle of another one. So Ecclesiastes chapter 6 is what we'll be looking at this morning through some of 7. Many of you know that um, <clears throat> I, I have a very worthwhile degree in sculpture. Um, and, and here's what will happen with the degree in sculpture. You, you have two options. Um, one is to work at Starbucks, and then the other one is to be a pastor, and I um, just decided to do both. And so here I am uh, with my degree in, in sculpture. I turned what um, could have been a, a four-year degree into four and a half, and in those four and a half years, um, uh, the, the, uh, the sculpture professor I had would not allow us to use the word good. Okay, So we couldn't use the word good, and, and here's how that worked out. We would, at the end of a project that was assigned to us, um, would gather as students in one of the galleries to critique one another's work. And as we're talking through those things and as we're going through the critiques, we were not allowed to use the word good. Um, we, we couldn't say of someone's work, you know, it's good, I liked it. Right? And, so, and, and the reason that, that he put that sort of restriction on us is because good it isn't a helpful word. It's not a, a descriptive enough to be a, a helpful word. And, and we joked about it, and it became sort of this mocking kind of thing. And for some reason, when we would mock it, we would use a southern accent. So we'd say, yeah, it's good. I liked it. You know, so that was a bad southern accent. But that's how we would do that. And so we, we couldn't use the word good. Um, it, it just didn't give the artist any real feedback when we would talk to it that way. So, so think about that. Um, it, it's it's hard not to use the word good when it comes to art, isn't it? Especially if you don't really know art. It's hard not to use that, that word. When a new album comes out, or tape, or record, or CD, or whatever you're doing these days, what do you ask the person, if you haven't heard it yet, what do you ask the person who has heard it? Well, was it good? Right? And what do they say? Yeah, it was good. And what does that tell you? nothing. It tells you absolutely nothing. And that goes on and on, right? How, how, how's the coffee at that place? Oh, it was good, right? How, how, what did you think about the food at that place? It was good. How was your vacation? Good. How, how was that new novel? Good. How was your day? Good. How was the weather when you were on vacation? It was good. What did you think about that concert? It was, it was good. Oh, you've had that new beer. How was it? It was good. How was the traffic on your way in? It was good. How were your conditions for, for the race that you ran? They were good. How was time with your family last week? It was good. You, you, you got to see that new art exhibit. How was it? Oh, it was good. And on and on we could go. And what does all of that communicate? Nothing. It communicates 
Absolutely nothing. Why? Because everyone has their own definition of what good is, right? Everyone has their own definition of what that looks like. And so, so here's what we begin to do. We begin to then trust certain people with, with certain answers when we ask questions, right? So we've got our guy who we ask about music, right? Because when he says it's good, we trust him. And, and we've got our guy who, who we ask about certain restaurants, because that guy knows good food, and, and when he says, oh yeah, it was good, we know what, what that means. And so we, we pick and choose who those certain people are. And, and, and we know not to ask that guy about movies, right? Because he thought Biodome and, and Geely were good movies. And so, so, so we don't ask him about that, right? We pick and choose who we want to determine what is good and what is not based on what we've heard them say is good before. And in so many ways, the word, the word good has, has just lost its effectiveness, hasn't it? It's just lost its meaning altogether. It's lost its effectiveness unless, unless I get to define the, those kinds of things for myself. I have the ability to define good for myself. And then it becomes situational, doesn't it? It becomes situational. One day you'll say, or I'll say, the weather was, was good, right? The, the weather was good. I can't believe it's, it, it's, it, it's raining outside, it's pouring down rain, and I just fertilized my, I mean, I just treated my lawn, and, and so it's good. It's good weather because it's raining, Right, And then the next day we'll say, the weather's not good because I'm supposed to go camping all weekend and it's raining. Do you see how it becomes situational? Our good becomes situational based on my perspective, based on what you think should be good. We do this in all kinds of areas, don't we? And, and when things don't work out the way that we like them, if we have a belief system in God, we will say, how can a good God allow that to happen, right? How, how can a good God allow that to happen? And that's all about my perspective, isn't it? It, it becomes all about my perspective. A, a good God would not allow those to happen, those things to happen. God is good when he acts in ways that we believe he should act. That, that's our perspective. God is good when he follows through with the things that we think he should follow through with. God is good when, when and only when my prayers are answered in the way and in the timing that I want them to be answered. Yes, then God is good. And the passage that we have in front of us this morning, we're going to have to wrestle with some difficult stuff. We're, we're, we're going to have to go to places in our theology that, that we don't want to go to. We've established already in this series that, that God is sovereign over all things. He, he's sovereign over our time. He's sovereign over our, our, our money. He's sovereign over our positions in life, in every aspect, in everything. God is sovereign. And if that's true, and it is, if that's true, then he is over what you would consider good and what you would consider bad. But in all of that, he, he is still good. Do you hear that? He is still good. And that messes with us, doesn't it? That, that messes with us in deep ways to, to try to figure that out, that, that God is good, that, that that never changes, that, that his goodness 
never changes. That, that messes with us. Our, our perspective of good may change and, and may vary, but, but he never changes. And so in this passage this morning, we're going to see the, the preacher revealing our perspective and, and the preacher revealing God's perspective. And, and we're going to start by asking the question, what is good for you? Now, that's what he deals with. What is good for you? And, and then, and then we, we get a little bit further, and we can't even really ask that question, right? Because those things change and rearrange. And so we get a little bit further, and we, we have to ask the question, okay, then, then, then that's not right. What is better for you? What, what is better for you? And, and then we need to, at the end, consider God. But we need to consider how our loving God and our loving Father fits into all of this, and that's where it gets hard to understand. That's where it rocks us. And so I don't want to get too far ahead of where we're headed in, in, in Scripture, but, but, but that's where this discussion gets difficult, and that's where the questions begin to arise, and that's where the doubts begin to creep in, and, and we begin to ask questions like, if God, if God is good, how can these things happen? If God is good, how could I lose my job? How, how could my dad die? How could my child die? How could my daughter get so sick? How could this cancer come back? Why am I still facing such deep depression and anxiety? How could this relationship be, be crumbling? How could this business deal fall through? If God is good, how could these things happen? And listen, friends, we've had a lot of that as a church already. And we're a young church. We're four years young. Uh, the average age in our church is 20, right? Or something like that. It, it, we are a, a young, young church, and we have faced some tragedy. We, we've faced some, some hard things, and, and that, those things begin to, to push on us and, and cause us to question and cause us to doubt God's goodness. But we've got to realize that the definition of, of good and God's definition of good, our definition of good and God's definition of good don't always line up. What is good for me may not be God's definition of good. Right, but I'm getting ahead of the text. Let's, let's look at chapter 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, let's look at, start, starting in verse 10. And here's what the preacher says. He said, whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. With more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And so just starting right off the bat, how does the, how's the preacher start? The preacher starts in this section with, with a significantly high view of God. That's where we've got to start in, in, this, in this discussion. He starts with a, a significantly high view of God. He says, whatever has happened has happened within the boundaries of what God has sovereignly determined would happen. He, he, it's already been named, says that in verse 10. It's, it's already been named. Whatever has already happened has already been predetermined by God in the past, before the world was formed, before you existed. That's a significantly high view of God, isn't it? He's sovereign over all things, and, and, and that's hard. This is hard, but, but he's already written our story. It, it, everything has already been named. 
This is not a new theory made up by the preacher. This is not just something that he's conjured up. This is all over the Bible. This is a truth about who God is. We have to believe that that he's sovereign over all things or he's not. And if he's not, then he's not God. If he's not sovereign over all things, he's not God. And we've got to come to grips with that. Some will say, well, I just can't believe in a a God who would cause this or that to happen. Then, Then you don't believe in God then you don't believe in the maker of heaven and earth. You don't believe in the one who spoke everything into existence. You don't believe in the one who then sent his son to stand in your place. Either he's sovereign over all things or he's not. And if he's not, then he's not God. And so the preacher says in verse 10, if things happen, God called it. God called it. And if he called it, he called it because he caused it. He named it. And if that's who God is, and it is, then the preacher goes on, then it is known what man is. If that's who God is, then it's known what man is. He's man and he's not God. And he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he is. And who's stronger? Who's he talking about? He's talking about God. And so he's saying he can't argue with God. He can't argue with God. That argument will not go well. You simply won't win that, that kind of dispute with God. Do you, do you know the story of, of Job? We've, we've talked through it already in this series. We've, we've sung some words from, from the book of Job. Job was a man who had it all. He, he had it all. Wealth, possessions. He had a, a large, happy family. He had it all. And in a matter of hours, he lost it all. And was God shocked? He was not shocked at all. God loved Job. Job was a a man who was the most righteous man on the face of the earth at that time. He he loved Job, God did. Following God in every way imaginable, Job was following. And God was intimately, hear this, God was intimately involved in the details of Job losing it all. I I want to word that correctly. He, he was intimately involved in, in the details of Job losing it all. And so for 40 chapters, we hear Job wrestling through how, how has all of this happened? His friends rebuke him and, and they kick him while he's down. And they say, it's because of your sin that all this is happening. And then his wife comes and, and she tells Job just, just to give it up. Just, just give it up, Job. Just, just die. Just die. And what does Job respond to her? Can, can we just take the good things from God and not the bad? And, and so Job gets understandably frustrated and, and confused about everything that's happened. And so he begins to, to question God. He begins to have this dialogue with God, questioning God. He begins to, to talk to God about his frustration. Now listen, listen, listen to this. Job talks to God about his frustration. And we can learn from that right there, right? In the midst of tragedy, talk to God. In the midst of your frustration, talk to God. God can handle that. He's a big God. You will not win the argument of sovereignty, but you can have a conversation with God about the ways that you're frustrated and the ways that you don't see things going well, but you won't win an argument over who's sovereign. You are not over all things God is. In fact, in Job chapter 31, Job, Job walks through all of the ways he's been a good and righteous man. As if to say, in some ways, look God, I don't understand here. I don't understand what's happening here. If there's anyone who deserves good from you, it's me. And so Job just begins to respond to God in chapter 38 and begins to rattle off questions. 
And, and, and then God responds and has questions for Job. And he says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? That's verse 4. Did you lay out all the intricate detailed measurements, verses 5 and 6? Did you put water on the earth and make sure it stayed where it was supposed to stay, verse 8? Are you the one who has commanded the sun to rise in the morning, verse 12? Do you know how deep the ocean is, verse 16? Are you the one who stores up snow to dump it at at your command, verse 22? Are you the one who is guiding the lightning down from the sky? Did you make the ground sprout grass? Are you organizing and orchestrating all of the constellations of stars? Have you numbered? the clouds are you placing food in front of the lions to be devoured verse 39 and then god continues verse after verse after verse of of questions in front of job putting him in his place and he goes into chapter 39 do you know when the mountain goats give birth do, do you know the moment when they crouch down to push out their, their young Job? Are you the, the one who has let the wild donkey be wild? Are you the one uh, that's let the wild ox be wild? How about the ostrich? How's that going for you? Are you the one who has made the horse strong? And on and on he, he goes, you will not win a dispute with the sovereign God of the universe, the one who is over all things. And, and when you're feeling angry and, and, and disappointed and, and frustrated with God, here's my suggestion read these verses read through these questions and just ask them of yourself and then respond in the way that job responds chapter 40 verse 4 here's what he says he says behold i am of small account what shall i answer you i lay my hand on my mouth that's a great place to start I am of small account. I'm small, God. And so I'm just going to shut it. God's sovereign over all things, or he's not sovereign over anything. I am of small account. That should be our perspective. And and Paul picks up on these same kinds of themes in Romans chapter 9, where he says, "But, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Our disputes with God are, and I'm not trying to be harsh, but our disputes with God are... Our arrogant attempts to be God at times. Our, our, our questioning of God's sovereignty over all things. Uh, our egocentric attempts in thinking that we know what is good. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes helps us understand in verse 11. He says, the more you talk, the more vanity that spews from your mouth. How's that helping? The more that you talk, the more vanity spews from your mouth. Talk it out with God, but but know that the answer is going to come back the same. I am God and you are not. I'm God and and you are not. And, And then we get to our question. And the question is this, what is good? What is good? Verse 12, the preacher says, Who knows what is good for man the few days of his vain life which which passes like a, a shadow? What is good? And the obvious answer to this rhetorical question is, is this. That there is not a human who has ever lived who knows what is good for them in every moment. There, there's not a, a human who has ever lived who knows what is good for him in every moment, in every situation. But we know who does know what is good. 
God. God alone is the one who's able to define what is ultimately good because he alone is the one who is over all things. He alone is the one who sees all things. He hears all things. He, he, he's over all things. What is good? The implication here is because we're unable to answer the question, we, we must accept it. I didn't, I didn't say we had to like it. I said we, we must accept in submission to what, what God has answered. We must accept the things that God sends our way. What is good? That's our question. What God sends us is good. That's the answer. What is good? What God sends us. And let's just be honest. That's frightening, isn't it? It's frightening to say, God, bring it on. It's frightening to say, I, I know it's good from, from your perspective. I know it's good. It's frightening. And, and it boggles our minds. We can't comprehend why, why a tornado would take the life of a dad and how that's good. We, we can't comprehend how and understand how in the past, past week, 230 Nigerian girls were abducted or kidnapped from their school just days before they were to graduate to be sold into slavery. We can't comprehend how that comes from a, a God who is good. And let's just bring that in to, to home. We can't understand why some of the things have, have happened to some of our very close friends, even in, in our church. We can't comprehend how those things come from a God who is good. But just because we can't comprehend it doesn't mean that God has stopped being God. And it doesn't mean that, that from his perspective and for his glory, this is not under the control of a sovereign and good hand. It can't mean that. We may not understand it all. We, we may not understand the majority of what God is doing. But that should not keep us from trying to figure it out. Does that make sense? We may not understand or comprehend everything that God is doing, but that should not stop us from trying to figure it out. Because what? What, what happens in the midst of that? We're pressing into God, aren't we? I've got to try to figure this out. I don't get it at all. And so I'm going to press in closer to God more and, and more. There are times when, when then there is wisdom from God that will, will help us see who He is more. Uh, wisdom from, from God, not, not just about what is good, but then what is better. And that's the next question we answer. That, that's what we see in the first 12 verses of Ecclesiastes 7. We see several proverbial uh, wisdom statements that show us what is good and then what is gooder. Okay, just seeing if you're awake, what is better, All right? So, so back, back and forth, nine times the word, word good is mentioned or better is mentioned repeated through these verses. Look at chapter 7, we'll read through them. Chapter 7, verse 1 says this, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. 
Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. We don't have time to, to walk through each of those Proverbs. I wish we did because some of them are, are kind of strange and we, and we need some help trying to figure those out. But, but here's what the preacher is trying to show us as he walks through those Proverbs. That, that God has given us insight into some things. God has given us insight into some things. God's wisdom is there to show us that, that there are some things that are good and that there are some things that are better. So, so let me show you verse 1, the first proverb. It, this one's easiest to understand. A good name is better than precious ointment. Right? You, you can buy good perfume. I don't know what that would be, but, but I've heard you can buy good perfume. And so, so you can do that, but you cannot buy a good name. You cannot buy a good name. That is given to you. So you see, there's good and, and there's better. There are, there are things that just are inherently better. And so the preacher eases us in to help us understand these, these good and better. And then next in verse 1, he says, The day of death is better than the day of birth. Now he's said that several times already in, in Ecclesiastes. He, he said this in chapter 4 and in chapter 6. When you die, at least you don't have to experience the kind of hurt, the kind of sorrow, the kind of heartache, the kind of oppression that, that you would see if you were still alive. There are things that are good and there are things that are better. And so he's just walking back through these things. In verses 2 and 3, we see that, that it's better to go to a funeral home than to a restaurant. It's better to have sorrow and sadness than laughter. Why? Because at a funeral, at a house of mourning, in times of, of sorrow and sadness, we're faced with the reality of death. And what does that do in us? In times of sorrow, what does that do in us? In that, we are taught to treasure and cherish our days. Have you, have you ever experienced that? You, you, you face some tragedy, you stare some tragedy in the eyes. And what does that do? Tomorrow, I'm living differently. I'm going to live differently. And so he, he works through this good and, and better. Times of sadness teach us, force us to cherish what we would call the good life now. And then the preacher heads in to verse 5. It's better to be rebuked from the wise than to hear pleasing songs from fools. Verse 8, the outcome, the, the final product is better than the beginning, the start of, of the, the project. Proverb after proverb showing what we see as good and then in wisdom from, from God seeing things that are, are better. And so we, we even have this sort of boggling mind where we think, no, that's good. And then we see God's wisdom. We say, no, that's actually, actually better. And the last set of Proverbs we get to, verse 11 and 12, are, are about gaining wisdom. In wisdom, from, from God's wisdom, we're able to make sense of some of life's issues. It's not all confusing. It's not all unknown to us. We're able to understand some of the things of God. And that should then press us in even closer to God. God has given us wisdom to know and see things that are good and things that are better than good. He's given us wisdom to see those things. And there, there, there are absolutely going to be times when we can't understand God's perspective. 
that, that we cannot understand God's perspective. There are absolutely going to be times when we cannot comprehend how God would see this thing as good. Right? We could probably all just pass around a mic right now and talk about the things that we just don't understand, how, how that can come from, from a God who, who's, who is good. But, but we see glimpses of it, don't we? We see glimpses of it. He, he's given us wisdom enough to see glimpses, and, and we must not lose heart. We, we cannot be discouraged. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We can't always comprehend or understand God's perspective. We, we just cannot understand His perspective of what is good. But we cannot lose heart. We, we cannot lose heart because our hope is not here in the things of here, right? I mean, we've seen that throughout Ecclesiastes. That's not our hope. And, and let, let me just say it again. We can't lose heart so that it pushes us away from trying to understand God. We cannot lose heart to the point where it pushes us away from trying to understand God and His goodness. So often what happens is we face some kind of trial, we face some kind of tragedy, and we get angry with God, and, and we know that we should believe, and we, and we would even say the right things. Yes, I, I know those things are true, but I'm not feeling it right now. And, and then we shove off, don't we? We, be, we begin to isolate ourselves from God and we begin to isolate ourselves from the, the people who, who God has put in our lives to point us back to God. No one wants to share their, their grief with, with a friend. But, but not to share in, in that way is to move away from God's design for us. We've got to understand that. Not to share grief with, with others who are around us, who want to point us to God, is not to follow through with God's design for us. We cannot lose heart. And in fact, in the same letter, Paul, Paul says to his friends in, in chapter 1, he says, God's a God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We cannot lose heart. We, we cannot see our affliction as the end. No, it's preparing for us something so much better. It is preparing for us something so much better. And we, we cannot isolate ourselves from God and others who, who God has, has given us to walk with us through these things. If, if you're going through some, some tragedy... You've got to have others around you. You've got to have others around you who listen well and remind you of the hope of the gospel. If, if you know others are facing trial or some kind of tragedy, they need you to listen to them well and remind them of the hope of the gospel. God is our comfort, and one way He is our comfort is by allowing others to be a comfort to us. Hear that? God is our comfort. And one way that God is our comfort is by allowing others to be a comfort to us. 
And so we can't isolate ourselves. We cannot hide in isolation from God or from others. Our minds are finite, aren't they? They're, 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 they're finite. We, we just cannot understand everything about God. We can't comprehend everything. And so we ask questions. What is good? But here's how we ask it. What is good for me? Is that how we ask it? And then, and then the other question, what is better? But how do we ask that? What is better for me? And, and maybe what I need to do instead of that is, is pushing away from thoughts of me and, and seeking instead to learn more of God. Seeking instead to, to push more into God. That's what the preacher gets at in these last few verses for today. He, he, he says, consider God. Consider God instead. In the midst of trial where you want to look at yourself, consider God instead. Look at verse 13. He says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. We often face suffering or tragedy and we think only of me. We think only of me. And Isaiah says to us in chapter 55, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek who? Seek seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Is that about us in any way? Seek the Lord. Call upon the Lord. That's not about us. And then he continues chapter 55, verse 8. And here's what he says. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Consider God. In the midst of our questioning, what's good for me, what's better for me, consider God. Isn't that what we need to be doing? We can't change Him. We can't change Him. What, what He has made crooked, we cannot straighten. We can't change God. And, and so our response, especially when we don't understand how He's good, our response is to consider the work of God. Consider the work of God. When things are going well, be joyful uh, because God has caused those things to go well. When trials come, remember the same God is over that. The, the same God is over that day of trial. We may not understand it, but, but we can continually consider the work of God. I know this is not an easy thing to think through. It may even sound insensitive. It may even sound insensitive to talk through while, while so many of us are facing difficult things in life. To say, yeah, yeah, God is good all the time, right? It may sound insensitive and it's difficult to believe It's difficult to understand that God is good. It's difficult to believe the promises in Scripture sometimes. It's difficult to believe those things. Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Really? Is that easy to believe? It's true, it's in Scripture, it's a promise from God, but is that easy to believe? For those who love God, all things are going to work together for good. We've got to remind ourselves and the others around us that it's our our sovereign God who defines good. 
We don't have the ability to define good from, from his perspective. We, we, we don't understand it now. One, one author I read this week said, we, we don't know what the future holds. We simply have to trust our God who holds the future. We don't know what the future holds, what's out there, but we, we simply have to trust the one who we know holds the future. God defines what is good, and, and so we trust and we wait and, and, and we keep considering God more than we consider our own trials. And I say that, and it sounds really easy as I say it right, but we're going to face the weak or face the stuff, and, and we're going to say, how do we do this? How, how do we move forward? So let me just end with this as an encouragement, as a challenge to us, as something that will fix our eyes on Jesus. Because that's all I know to do in times of trial like this. So just to fix our eyes on Jesus. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says this. He says, this is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is good. This is good. That's what Paul says. This is good. In God's eyes, this is good. What's good? What what is good? What's he talking about? And so Paul continues in in verse 5. He says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That's what's good. That's what's good. This is good, is what Paul says. And and then he tells us what is good. But Jesus gave his life. He he, he gave his life. How is that good? Jesus gave his perfect life for sinners like you and me. How is that good? If if we're rating perspectives of what is good, how is that good? Even in, in death, God's plan is to be considered good. He had a plan in place that did not spare his son. That was his plan, but gave him up for us. Is that good? That, that is good, and it doesn't stop there. It, it, it continues. God, God also has a plan in place to raise his son from the dead, and he did, which gives us hope not just in this life. Gives us hope not just in this life, but in the life to come. We don't know everything that the future holds for us. But, but we do know the God who holds the future. And, and that's good. And it's in that God that we rest. And it's in that God that we hope. Because he has the power to raise his son from the dead. And even though we don't understand everything that's going on, we, we rest in that. We have a God who loves us. Loves us enough that he didn't spare his son. Who gave his life. Raised him from the dead. So that we can have hope. Can I pray that we would believe that? That's all I can do. Let me pray. Father, we need your help this morning. These are not things that are easy for me, for me to believe. These are not things that are easy for me to comprehend that in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of the, the days of adversity, that you're over those things too. It's easy for me to understand that in the days of prosperity, that I can rejoice in you. But when, when things are not going the way that I would like them to go, or when tragedy hits in all kinds of ways, or just trials hit, 
It's not as easy, and so we need your help to believe that you are a God who's over all things and that that is good. You are good. All the time you're good. You're never changing. You don't waver. We never have to guess about, are you good this time? Are you not? You are a good God. And we may not comprehend it. And so in the midst of our, our misunderstanding, in the midst of our confusion, I pray that you would fill us with belief, not doubt. And I pray that we would press into you more, to know you more, and not ourselves and our, our grief more. God, if there are those in this room who are wrestling through deep stuff right now, stuff that feels deep to them, I pray that you would be a comfort. We read this morning that you are the God of all comforts who comforts us in all of our affliction. And so for those in this room this morning who are hurting, who are facing tragedy, who are facing trial, who are facing things that seem overwhelming, would you be a God who, who is their comfort? And would they sense that? These things we pray knowing you hear us. Amen.